We're going to read together from Numbers chapter 14 and verses 1 to 25. And uh, there's a lot of scripture reading in tonight's talk, but uh, we'll see how we get on with it. Numbers 14 initially and verses 1 to 25. It's a story of people's rebellion. Let's hear God's word. That night, all the people of the community raised their voices and wept aloud. We'll come back to the context of that later. It's uh, because of the uh, discouraging report that uh, came back from the exploration of the land of Canaan. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this desert. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? They said to each other, we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down in front of the whole Israelite assembly gathered there. Joshua son of Nun and Caleb son of Jephunneh who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. That was a sign of repentance and distress in those days. And they said to the entire Israelite assembly, The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord." And do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. Then the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. The Lord said to Moses, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. But I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they. Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people, and that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that your cloud stays over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If you put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land he promised them an oath, so he slaughtered them in the desert." Now may the Lord's strength be displayed, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, that he does not leave the guilty unpunished, and he punishes the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. In accordance with your great love, forgive the sin of these people, just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. The Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you asked. Nevertheless, as surely as I live and as surely as the glory of the Lord fills the whole earth, 
Not one of the men who saw my glory and the miraculous signs are performed in Egypt and in the desert, but who disobeyed me and tested me ten times. Not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their forefathers. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. Since the Amalekites and Canaanites are living in the valleys, turn back tomorrow and set out towards the desert along the route to the Red Sea. Ending there, God bless us in that word. Let's pray that God may speak to us from it. Father, we deal with a difficult passage and pray that you would help us to be able to do some justice to it tonight in our thinking, but that you would be with us as we listen to your word, that we may have tender hearts and consciences that may be open to what you say, and that we may be a people who will hear your word and respond to it, and that we may respond to it in a way that is pleasing in your sight. Through Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. I confess to being at times very impatient. There are many situations, indeed people, I pray for, and I say, God, why don't you answer that prayer yesterday? I don't want to wait, and I don't want to have to go through years of waiting and waiting. And it may be that some of you are in the same situation. You pray for that person in your family that they would come to faith in Jesus, and the more you pray for them, sometimes the further they seem to go away from the truth and from God. And you say, Lord, why are you not doing it now? I get very impatient when I see sin and evil being rampant in families and in society and in the world. And I get impatient with a world that's increasingly squeezing Christian faith in the public square into the margins. I get impatient with governments and nations who are legislating and bringing to pass into the constitutions of their country things that we feel are not right with Scripture because they're sin. And I get impatient with so many things. Like the young preacher who was told he needed the gift of patience, and he went to the church prayer meeting and he said, Lord, give me the gift of patience and give it to me now, right now. I understand the Greek word for patience, makrothumeo, comes from two words, makros meaning far away and thumos meaning anger. So patience really is the opposite of anger. It is far away and it is the opposite of anger. Anger is a distant emotion when it comes to patience. But we all get frustrated and angry at times. And sometimes our anger is justified. And sometimes we see situations of injustice and things that are done to us or done to others that we know are just not right and we're full of anger. And we want to, as we've been singing, learn to wait upon the Lord and to know His patience. But I wonder when we think of our impatiences, have we ever thought about God's patience and been thankful for it? If God was not patient... I believe his anger would break out amongst us more frequently, more obviously, and more strongly. And tonight in Numbers, we're thinking about 
these attributes of God's anger with his patience in the context of this table that we gathered around that reminds us of the love of God that rather than an anger destroying humanity, sent Jesus to be our Savior. And as we think through, let's just remember a little bit of the context of this rebellion that we've read about in chapter 14. If you go back to Numbers 13, verses 1 and 2 tell us that the Lord said to Moses, "'Send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites,' From each ancestral tribe, send one of its leaders. So Moses sent out the 12 spies. Do you remember, some of you may, uh, like myself, remember the little course. Uh, 12 men went to spy, went to spy in Canaan. 10 were bad, 2 were good. 12 men went to spy. And so they go out and they, they, they bring back this report. Uh, and uh, you'll find that uh, mainly in verses 26 to uh, 33. I'm not going to read it all, but uh, if Jim can keep up with me, uh, they, they come back and give Moses and Aaron, the whole Israelite community, an account, and they talk about how it's a land full of milk and honey. Uh, and then uh, verse 28, but the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Uh, and they say this is a really hard place. Uh, and then good old godly Caleb, verse 30, Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread a bad report. Uh, and verse 32 says that uh, the, the land they explored, they said, the land we explored devours those living in it. What on earth does that mean? I mean, that you can't go up there because, you know, the ground will open up and swallow you all up. Uh, and all the people we saw of great size, we saw the Nephilim there, descendants of Anak, that come from the Nephilim giants. They're all six foot eight or seven foot tall. <laughs> we can't do it. And the ten who were bad hold sway. And the people rebel in terms of what we heard in uh, Numbers chapter 14. And so we think firstly tonight of the the spies' feedback and people's rebellion. One of the most effective political campaigns of recent years was that of Barack Obama when he first ran for the presidency of the United States. And I don't know if you remember back to that first uh, campaign or not, but he popularized the slogan, Yes, We Can. And that was the slogan, if you like, of godly Caleb uh, in verse 13. We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. Yes, we can. No, we can't. They're too big. They're too strong. They're too powerful. Yes, we can, says Caleb. For if we go in the power and in the strength of God, God will be with us. But whilst the slogan worked for Obama, it didn't work for Caleb. The other spies started to spin against Caleb, and their PR machine won the day. And they said, verse 31, the men who had gone up with him, we can't attack the people. They are stronger than we are. And so the people rebel against Moses and ultimately against God. And 
We read the first five verses and more of chapter 14, but in that uh, wording of chapter 14 and verses 1 to 5, it's worth noting, I think, certain elements in their rebellion. A commentary I read in uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 27, commenting on this, indicates that the people actually say, the Lord hates us. And so here in Numbers, they complain that God has brought them out of Egypt only for them to be slaughtered by the undoubted giants that the spin doctors claimed were waiting for them in the promised land. The whole purpose of their redemption from slavery in Egypt was that they should go into the promised land that God said they would be able to inhabit. So as they rebel here in chapter 14, they're actually rebelling against God's plan of redemption to free them. They'd only come halfway. They'd come out of Egypt, but had not yet claimed the land that God was leading them to. In other words, they were rejecting God's plans for them, and that is deep rebellion indeed. Then in their fear, the people say perversely in chapter 14 that they'd rather have died in Egypt and that they should appoint a leader to take them back to that place. I don't know whether you picked up on it, but I find God's response very telling. The Lord said to Moses, verse 11 of chapter 14, How long will these people treat me with contempt? How long will they refuse to believe in me in spite of all the miraculous signs I have performed among them? Again, commentators tell me that the language in the Hebrew is quite specific and actually connotes a a sense of adultery, that, that God is actually saying, how long will this people be an adulterous people who will fall out of love with me, who will fall away from me, who will disown me, dishonor me, who will not listen to me, who will dishonor me. It's the language of adultery. And the people are not simply rejecting Moses and Aaron, but they're rejecting God and being unfaithful to God. And then they allowed their discouragement to feed their inferiority complex. Uh, Chapter 13 and verse uh, 32 that we read earlier on, they spread among the Israelites a bad report. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it, and all the people we saw there are of great size. Now listen, were every single one of them six foot eight or seven foot tall? No. Did the land really devour the people in it? No. It was a land flowing with milk and honey and a wonderful, pleasant place to be. And so it's rather akin to the warnings that we had in the general election as, you, uh, as people tried to make up their minds whether to vote for this party or that party. And one party would say, if you vote for that party, then everything will be disaster. And the other would say, if you vote for that party, it will be terrible. And people were having all these kind of discouraging and exaggerated reports. The ten spies said the inhabitants of Canaan made them feel like grasshoppers. And sometimes I wonder, actually, whether we suffer from that inferiority complex. I said earlier on that we live in a society that is, I think, increasingly squeezing the Christian church into the margins. And when I am impatient for those in my family who have not yet come to faith, I I look at what I call the giant of culture. And I wonder, how can my family who do not know Jesus ever 
have the power, the strength to rebel against the culture that tells them many negative things and tells them certainly things that are not found in the Scriptures. And I, I, I feel sometimes like a grasshopper in the face of the strength of culture as it squeezes us into its mold. And there's something I'd love to develop, and we may well do it down the line, in terms of how we understand the Scriptures as something that are the springboard to us transforming society. Because you see, I think at the moment what's happening in our world and in our culture is that our culture is sending us to the Scriptures to find ways of accepting things in the culture and make them all right and agree to them and then move on. Do you understand what I'm saying? That as a people we should be going to the Bible as our ultimate authority. And if the Bible says something is wrong, it's sin. And if it's sin, therefore it must be repented of, it must be fought against, it must be overcome in the power of Christ, in the blood He shed for us on the cross. And so I really feel that the church is in danger of losing this radical sense of taking Scripture and applying it to society and transforming and changing society. I belong to an evangelical tradition. And when I go back into history, it was my evangelical tradition that began hospitals, that began schools, that began to fight against slavery, that began to fight against the power of the barons and the, uh, the, the uh, big bosses. And the trades union movement was often started by Christian people. And when you go back into our history, you discover that it was Christians who really began to shape society because of their conviction that Scripture taught us how to live and how to behave and taught us how to change the world. And now it's the world is changing the church. May God forgive us. And so discouragement set in and the people rebelled against God and they said, oh, we'd rather go back to Egypt You know, some of them began to even think the food back there was even better. Because here in the desert, God only gives us this awful manna. And so, let's contrast God's anger at the people with Moses' appeal. For God comes and says in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 12, having said, how long will these people treat me with contempt? He says in verse 12, I will strike them down with a plague and destroy them. And then he makes what I think is one of the most incredible offers in Scripture. He says to Moses, and God never says anything that he doesn't mean. He never says anything as an off-the-cuff comment not to be taken seriously. He says, I will strike them down to the plague and destroy them, but I will make you into a nation greater and stronger than they are. Wow! And I thought, you know what? If I was Moses, I'd say, bring it on, Lord. Here were these grumbling, pesky, pedant kind of people here were these ungrateful so-and-sos. Here were the, Do you know they started talking about Moses? Oh, sure, he was brought up in the Egyptian palace. He's not really one of us. His brother and sister think they're the bee's knee. Sure, 
Aaron and Miriam said, we're prophets as well, don't we speak? And so the campaign against Moses over the years had been constant and grumbling and, and slanging matches and all the rest of it. I've been Moses. I would say, thank you, Lord. Bring it on. Destroy these ungrateful so-and-sos. And let it happen that I would become the father of a great, great nation. I'm sorry, but I think I would have said in Moses' position, thank you, Lord, bring it on. But what does he do? This man who is described in Scripture as one of the most humble who ever lived. In chapter 14 and verses 13 to 16, he says, Lord, you know what? First of all, you've got to think of your reputation. Uh, Let's read those verses again, if we may. Moses said to the Lord, verse 13, Then the Egyptians will hear about it. If you kill all these people, the Egyptians will hear about it. By your power you brought these people out from among them, and they'll tell the inhabitants of this land about it. They have already heard that you, O Lord, are with these people, that you, O Lord, have been seen face to face. Your cloud stays over them. You go before them in the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. If you put all these people to death at one time, the nations who have heard this report will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised them an oath. He slaughtered them in the desert. I don't know about how you speak to God, but would it ever occur to you to say, when you feel God is saying something that you really don't like, think of your reputation, Lord? And maybe when it comes to praying for this church, I wonder how often we pray for the unity that should be ours in Christ. And how often do we say, Lord, if this church was ever to split apart, if this church was ever to be disunited, think of your reputation. Protect this place and make it a place of unity and love. He says, think of your reputation, Lord. Then he says, think of your character. Imagine having the cheek to say to the Almighty, Think of your character. Verses 17 uh, to 19. Now may the Lord's strength be displayed just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished, uh, and so forth. And he says, think of your character, Lord. And you think of that definition of grace, uh, or of patience rather at the beginning that, that says it's like anger that's been displaced far off. Uh, and we have that wonderful statement from the Psalms, Psalm 145. Uh, and uh, the, the psalmist says this uh, lovely, lovely thing about God. The Lord is compassionate, Psalm 145, verse 8 and 9. The Lord is compassionate, gracious and compassionate slow to anger, and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion in all He has made. Men in the church, in the responsibilities that you carry, are you reflecting a God who is slow to anger and rich in love? Women in the congregation, are you people who are displaying the evidence that God is good to all and has compassion in all He has made? Men and women together, 
Are we displaying that aspect of God's character? And Moses says, think of your reputation, Lord. Think of your character. You're slow to anger. So don't go against who you are. Don't destroy these people just like that, even though you can. And then he goes on to say, think of your promise, Lord. In Numbers 14 and verse 16, uh, the Egyptians would say the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He had promised them an oath. He says, think of your promise, And the promise, of course, refers back to the covenant God first made with Abram centuries before that a great people would come from his descendants. And Moses is saying to God, you cannot go back on your word. And he says, finally, remember your love, Lord. Again, at verse 19 of uh, chapter 14, this surely was the clincher, wasn't it? In accordance with your great love, Forgive the sin of these people just as you have pardoned them from the time they left Egypt until now. Here's a question. If you were God, what would you do? Here's a people God has counted ten times they've been rebellious. Ten times since he delivered them from Egypt with the most amazing display of heavenly and godly power and and miraculous signs. He has brought them out of Egypt and slavery. He has provided guidance through the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. He has provided manna in the desert when no food was available. He has provided water from the rock. He has provided in every single possible way. And yet they say, I'd love to go back to Egypt. And actually, they wanted to stone Moses and Aaron. They wanted to stone their leaders. That's a serious rebellion. What would you have done if you were God? And yet God comes, and Moses prays, and Moses intercedes for the people. The Lord replied in verse 20 of Numbers 14, I have forgiven them as you asked. Actually strikes me that there are people in life I need to learn to forgive. And there are people who need to forgive me. And the Lord replies to Moses, I have forgiven them as you have asked. Forgiveness is a powerful thing. When I give and offer forgiveness, I am more like Christ than at any other time in my Christian life. And the children of Israel, please note, at this time had not repented of their rebellion. The children of Israel were still champing at the bit, still wanting to go back into the old life, back into the old ways, back to slavery in Egypt better than having to face going into the promised land. And yet, because of the intercession of a godly man, the Lord replied, I have forgiven them as you have asked. What a wonderful example of God's patience. Why did God then punish the Israelites and condemn them to 40 years wandering in the desert? Well, I think the answer to that is probably found in Deuteronomy 8 and verses 2 and 3. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years 
to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. When we go through difficult times, when we go through setbacks, when we go through problems, could it be that God is saying, I'm doing this to humble you and in order to know what is in your heart, whether you will keep my commands or not. Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna which neither you nor your fathers had known to teach you. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Wow. You see, as a father with four young children growing up, I so much prayed, Lord, make them men and women of God. And I prayed that God would protect them. And I prayed that God would help them advance in education and career so that they might make a good living. But you know what? Maybe I should have simply prayed, Lord, make them men and women of God. Because I think we have that need to understand in our own personal lives that actually we put such emphasis on living by bread. The food that we put on the table is important. God knows that. We put such an emphasis on education. Education's important, and God knows that. But even food and education and the stuff of life are not actually what really gives us breath every morning and every night and every day. Even the money we amass and the kudos we gather and the good things we do does not make us able to shorten our lives or lengthen our lives or do all sorts of things that we would like to do. We can't do anything. And I led you, says God, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone. He knows you need bread. But in every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. Now, I'm aware that probably I should bring this to a close, so let me try and pull it together with just a few things. Rebellion and sin are a waste of time. I have at times in my life been in a position of rebellion before God. Sometimes it's been things that I felt he was calling me to do that I didn't want to do. I uh, rebelled against going into the ministry of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland. I did not want to have anything to do with an institution. <laughs> Maybe some of you are wishing, oh, pity he did. But I rebelled. I rebelled against God in terms of saying to God at one stage, I want to do this for a career and you will be pleased with me. And God turned me upside down and wasted in adverted commas a year of my life till I submitted and said, Lord, it's not what I want, but you want. Rebellion and sin are a waste of time, but they present sometimes an opportunity for God's grace to be displayed and for our obedience to be renewed. Repentance should lead to a new obedience to God's Word. 
And uh, I, I really feel that we have watered down saying to people about the need for repentance. If I'm a sinner, I don't keep on going back to sinning without feeling that God is saying to me, Ken, you've got to stop that. Repentance means turning back from what you're doing, turning away from what you're doing, and realigning your focus on God. And we need to learn to do that. When we've been living in disobedience to this Word of God, we need to start putting it into practice and obeying it. For rebellion is a waste of time. But even in rebellion, even after disobedience, God is still there. I have at various times in my life had what I would call oasis experiences. I have at times when the water's been plentiful, the land has been lush and green, the uh, things around me have been verdant and pleasant and good, and it's been great. But I've had times of wilderness, times of feeling I'm on my own, times of feeling that nobody cares, times of feeling God doesn't care, times of feeling God has abandoned me. And I've had times of shame when I have realized that it is I who have abandoned God and not that he has abandoned me. But one thing I have discovered is that whatever happens in life, it may be from a personal failure, it may be from a broken relationship, it may be from a terrible bereavement, a spiritually dry period, it may be perhaps through deliberate disobedience, perhaps some foolish and sinful action, perhaps because of a terrible betrayal and wrong inflicted upon you. It may be that in the wilderness that you're there in, maybe some of you at the moment, and you wonder, is God there? And perhaps you wonder if you've messed up and missed God's plan for your life. Well, please don't fall for that because it's the enemy's lie that there is no hope, no second chance, no opportunity to again discover God's mercy and his loving embrace. You see, like the Israelites in the wilderness, the wilderness is not meant to be your final destination. The wilderness is not where God wants you to stay. God wants to turn the consequences of sin and folly into opportunities for His grace and for His blessing. He wants to give us time to repent. And at times, who knows who's praying for us, whose prayers God will answer and say, I will forgive them even before we have repented. And God comes to us and says, will you rebel or will you renew your obedience to me and live a life of love? We're going to pray, and in a moment or two, we're going to be sharing in communion. We remind you this is not the table of any denomination, but open to those who love the Lord. But you know what? It's also not the table for perfect people. It's a table for sinners, sinners who love God. If you're in outright rebellion and you will not submit to God, then actually you shouldn't take communion. But if you're open to that voice that says, I have forgiven them as you have asked, and if you're open to saying, Lord, I want to be a person not of rebellion but of obedience, 
I want to be a person who will allow the Scriptures to inform my life and to transform my life and to educate how I think about the world and people around about me, then God is for you and God is with you. Let us pray. Just as the worship team come up on stage, we pray. Father, we thank you that even though you faced outright brazen and total rebellion from the children of Israel at Kadesh, that they had in Moses one who was not tempted by the promise that you said that you would make of him the great nation rather than them. And we thank you that through his intercession, you brought forgiveness. Yes, there were consequences for sin. Forty years of wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, were huge consequences. But yet you remain true to your word and you forgive. And as we come tonight, we pray that you'd help us to be people who will taste once again your forgiveness and your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.